Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin. I'm joined by my co-host, Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello. And this evening, we're joined by a very special guest, Academy Award-winning makeup and special effects artist, Mr. Matthew Mungle. Matthew, how the hell are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, sir. So start at the foundation just to keep it simple. So take us back in time. You're a youngster. What sort of films or fiction are you reading comics? You're building models. What were you into? Well, I was raised on a farm in Atoka, Oklahoma. So who knows how I got into (laughs) (laughs) I love the classics. Frankenstein, Dracula, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Wolfman, Mummy, all of the universal classics. The good stuff. So I'd stay up at late at night and watch them on black and white television and be scared and have my sister stay up with me because I was scared. And I was just fascinated by how, is that a real character? What is this? And I later (laughs) found out, well, it's makeup. So it's like, well, that's interesting. You know, I was fascinated by art anyway. Mm. And then putting makeup on somebody's face, going to three-dimensional art, was even more interesting to me. And then about 1964-65, I saw Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. I was just amazed at how Tony Randall, who was an Oklahoman also, turned into those various characters thanks to William Tuttle, his makeup artist, and the makeup artist at MGM at the time. Then, of course, 19. 68 Planet of the Apes came. That was it. <laughs> I was in. I wanted to do that. Even before that, I think I got the Richard Corson makeup book and just started devouring the book. It was my Bible at the time. And I was just fascinated how to do hair, how to do a bald cap, how to do a nose with putty, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. The kids kids start out on and my mom and dad thought oh it's just a phase he's going through here we are here we are (laughs) so when did you start applying your interest did you start maybe in theater in high school working back then well we i remember i was from a took oklahoma that was about the time population of 35 or 4,000 people oh okay (laughs) we didn't have a a trauma class we'd put on i think the seniors and juniors would put on a play at the end of the year but i because i I read Richard Corson's makeup book, and I also picked up Dick Smith's Monster Maker book. And it was a little uh, made by Famous Monsters of Filmland. You'll have it today. It's really well worn. And he specified every place you could go to or call and order makeup supplies in mainly in new york because that's where he was based so i devoured that book also because there were simple step-by-steps of how to do different things a wolfman the mr hyde a mummy etc etc and it was just fascinating to me so i immediately started doing it i guess probably at 11 years old i started playing with latex and spirit gum and nose putty and latex and cotton and things like that on my face and then i got into because of the richard corson book taking your face cast 
Well, none of my friends or my sister would let me do a face cast of it. <laughs> and I wouldn't do it. I, I knew better because I'd read the Rich Porson book to do it with plaster. You use moulage at the time, which was this material that you'd heat up in a double boiler and then it would cool down enough to put on the face and paint it on the face and then cover it in plaster and then pull that off and that's your face cast. But nobody would let me do that. That face cast to him. So I talked one of my girlfriends in high school into taking a face cast of me. So I told her how to do it. We ran through it and I prepped myself, put myself back, you know. And so she did it. And so that was my first face cast of myself. And I was looking through my boxes today and I found that face cast. I guess it was 1972 or something like that. Oh, how cool. And then also about the same time, about the time that it wasn't Battle for the Planet of the Apes. It was Conquest of the Planet of the Apes mm. came out. And I had already made myself up as a chimpanzee or an ape <laughs> from Planet of the Apes. And I'd sent my pictures into famous monsters and got a, oh, kudos, you know, more readers want, like Matthew Mungle. You know, I still have that issue. <laughs> I showed it to my friend who was the daughter, the movie theater owner in the town. And that night, he called me and said, we have Conquest of the Planet of Apes coming to the show next week and wanting to know if you would dress up for me and come down and just promote the show. I said, yes, I, of course. <laughs> I so on a Saturday morning, I got up at five o'clock, made myself up, put the whole makeup on. I had an orange jumpsuit, just like in the picture, put hair on my hands, drove up to which was about five miles away into town and went to the theater knocked on the door and john thompson the owner of the theater opened the door and he just kind of took was a little gas oh you really did this <laughs> i said yeah uh -huh. <laughs> you wanted me to do this <laughs> and he said well i made you some signs well, i want you to walk around town and just kind of promote the show and this was about eight o'clock in the morning before as the sh shop were opening so all day from eight o'clock in the morning until night because there was two performances of the of two showings of the movies one a matinee on a saturday and one an evening showing didn't talk to anyone because they knew the mongol family in town because it was a it was a dairy farm and we produced milk and everything and they knew me so i didn't talk at all and that gave me my first experience in how an actor feels, how a makeup artist feels, how just becoming a character. And I loved it. <laughs> and it was just, I didn't speak all day. I think I had a little bit of lunch, you know, I put in, you know, open my mouth, put it in, my latex on my face. I don't think I took that makeup off until <laughs> 11 o'clock at night. He presented me with a $15 check and it was the first, it was my first paycheck being a makeup artist and an actor, I had earned. And that That's was awesome. in about 1972. And it was just, okay, I like this. And he, when he gave me the check, would you be willing to do more characters and come? And I said, of course, I would love to do. And it led to a lot 
of creating characters like Robin Hood from, I love to sew and make costumes, so I do Robin Hood with a full head from the Disney at the time, Robin Hood. One of the Dracula films came out. I dressed as a Dracula hunchback. I do displays and the sky was the limit at the time. I just, whatever. I would have loved to have had something like that going down at the theaters when I was growing up. So you probably helped with a lot of people's movie watching experience. <laughs> I did. And I scared a lot of really <laughs> but I kind of stood back because I didn't want them to hit I had a lot of African-American friends growing up in high school I, I loved hanging around with them because they were so cool they introduced me to soul music everything and I'd see them coming up the street or coming up and they were the best to scare they would just no no <laughs> you know, they would uh, just, and I knew they were my friends. So it was just it was so much fun. When did the town find out that it was Matthew Mungle behind the mask? That day, when I did the ape, the chimpanzee makeup, the local paper came and took a picture of me and did a little article on me. So it came out the next Thursday. So they knew it was Matthew Mungle at the time. <laughs> That's cool. Sorry if I missed you saying it, but it was the Planet of the Apes makeup. Did you get that from the magazine? The uh, process? No, no, I made it. At the time, I didn't know how to make a mold. At, at the time, I didn't have a face cast of myself, I don't think. And what I did was get a foam, a wig block, you know, a head block, styrofoam wig block, and sculpted the eyebrows, the upper nose, and then the lower piece on the styrofoam head. And it was, it was out of water clay, I think. It wasn't even oil-based clay. And then quickly took latex and painted several coats over it and peeled it off. And I had an appliance. I oversculpted a little bit and I had an appliance I could put on, you know, and I knew about rubber mask grease at the time. You couldn't use regular makeup. You had to use rubber mask grease because of the castor oil. Because I had read the Richard Corson book. And because of the Dick Smith book, in that magazine, he showed how to make a wig by making a ball cap and then laying crepe wool over it and latex. So I did that, made that whole thing, made some pieces go around, added extra hair. So I did the, actually from start to finish, I did the makeup. That's impressive. The way a makeup artist is supposed to. That's impressive. So in your next step towards your eventual career in Hollywood, what uh, role did Oklahoma State, the art program, play in that? Well, I graduated in 1975 from Matoka High School. And then that fall in 1975, I had enrolled in Oklahoma State University and I knew I wanted to be in the theater because that was where my love was, was theater, making props, making costumes, things like that. So as soon as I got there, got settled in my dormitory, I took my portfolio at the time, because I'd done all these makeups and costumes, to Dr. Jerry Davis, who was the scenic designer at the theater at OSU, and sat down with him and showed him all what I'd done. And he said, you did this in high school? And when you were junior, senior, what, sophomore? I said, yeah, I just made all this stuff and, you know, just learned on my own, just doing that. Well, we have a place for you, young man. <laughs> so the first play they put on was Skin of Their Teeth. And it has a dinosaur, woolly mammoth, and something else in it that was kind of fantastical. Thornton Wilde play, it was called Skin 
skin of our teeth. And they put me into the costume department doing the mask out of Celastic, which was this material you dip in acetone and put it over. I don't sell it anymore because you have to <laughs> dip it in acetone. I don't know what I did to my sister, but, you know, and then you'd have a form that you'd made and put it over that. Once that dries, you cut the piece off and you put it back together. And that's your mask, big mask that you can put on. And I animated it so that the jaw would make, I was in heaven, you know, <laughs> made props, everything. It was fun. It was my time. It was my time. So after college, you arrived at, let's see, your bio says the Joe Blasco Makeup Center in Hollywood in 77. How did it finally feel to be where you wanted to be? Amazing. That summer of 1977, I was living down in Houston, Texas. I want. I was always wanting to work at an amusement park. I wanted to work at Disney World, but mm. that's too far away. So I went down to Houston, Texas and worked at Astro World, which is not there anymore. But a little film called Star Wars came out that summer, 1977. <laughs> yeah. Little, little. And Rick Baker had done some creatures for it, you know, as pickup shot. And he was doing the circuit coming around doing the sci-fi conventions at the time. And he was going to be in Houston. I was like, oh, I got to go there. So I went there, showed him my portfolio. He was uh, very unimpressed with my portfolio because it was and I said, well, I'm thinking about moving out to California and going to the Elegance International School of Makeup. And he said, no, no, no don't go there. Go to the Joe Blasco Makeup City. And I go, oh, okay. So after I met him, we parted ways. I went out into the lobby, got on the phone and called the Joe Blasco Makeup Center and said, could you send me some information to the place I'm living in in Houston? They did. I spent the rest of the summer working at the amusement park, trying to sculpt and do stuff, you know, uh, in my apartment on the, uh, my downtimes. And then, and then I went, I had to go back to OSU and do one more semester. And I go, you know what? I don't want to be here. I've got to go to Hollywood and continue my dream and see if it's actually what I need to do. And I call my brother and I said, oh, I just, you know, I was crying to him. I just like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to OSU. I need to go to Hollywood. He said, okay, let me call dad. And I had four brothers and sisters. So this was my older brother, not my oldest brother. And he said, let me call dad and talk to him. He called him. He called me about maybe 30 minutes later. Okay. So Mason tells me you want to move to Hollywood. I tell you what, I'll make you deal. You finish this semester out and you can go to Hollywood December, as long as you're enrolled in the Joe Blasco Makeup Center. So immediately I enrolled in Joe Blasco Makeup Center. That was it. That was it. <laughs> I made all Fs that semester except for screen uh, scenic design with Jerry Davis, who I met first. And I, that was an A plus because I loved it so much and drafting and everything. Everything else was an F. I didn't get it. I didn't give a shit. <laughs> so, so come the day after Christmas. I had loaded up the car. I took off at four o'clock in the morning, drove to Santa Fe, stayed with my cousin there, and then woke up the next morning and drove straight into Holly. And I didn't look back. I swear. I just 
I, I had an apartment two days after I was there. I set my life up, introduced myself to Joe Blasco at the makeup center. He put me to work on certain things even before the class started. And I was, as soon as the class started, I was like a sponge soaking up as much information as I could about everything, beauty, makeup, ball caps, beards, everything. I had a little knowledge of it, but I was retraining myself the way to really do it. And he was a great mentor. He was a great teacher. And I, I thank him to this day. We still keep in touch. And I just, he's so proud of me because I just went on to the next step. You know, it was the most amazing time of my, it was, it was the most I've ever learned through an educational school ever in my life, because it's what I wanted to do. Literally like I sponge. What would you say are the biggest lessons you took away from that school? It's moving forward. Be humble. You have a little bit of knowledge now. You will never have all the knowledge you need. So constantly keep working at it. Keep learning and listen to other people. Don't think you know everything because you don't. And I still don't know. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, you know, I know this much of this much. So it, and I'm constantly learning new materials, new ways of doing things. It's, it's a constant learning situation where, as far as makeup is concerned. And I love it because it's so creative. Right. And that's what, that makes me think of this question. This is a little sidebar. Yeah. So is there a situation to where you're on set and you're presented with an oh shit problem to where you have no idea what you're going to do to fix it? Well, how did you fix it? <laughs> well, there's been several of those times. <laughs> you know, I started out my career because Joe would, he would recommend me to different projects and stuff while I was, because after I graduated, he put me to work teaching at the school. So <laughs> that really it reinforced what I had learned at the school and his, his ways of doing stuff. So I mainly did my own projects until maybe, in, and that was in 1978 that I went to the school and until about 1982 or 83, I was doing all my own projects. So I learned a lot being on the set and, and that really helped me and reinforced learning about make there's been several times of bullshit <laughs> moments <laughs> one of them later on in my career was i was working on heaven and earth it was an oliver stone film and we really got along right oliver did and i because he knew that i loved what i did and i was passionate about what i did i wanted to support him and what he was doing as a director as you were supposed to anyway, because you're not number one. It's the director that's number one. So he said, Matthew, I want to do this. I don't know what it was. It was like certain thing. I don't know. Well, wait, I don't know if it was a heaven and earth or no, it was natural born killers. Oh. And he said, okay, I want right after heaven and earth, I want to blow Robert Downey Jr.'s ear off. I go, well, okay. We can't blow it all off, but we can blow a little piece of it off. And let me think about it. So I went around the corner and go, oh, shit. How the fuck am I going to do this? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. So what I did was I had a little broken nose piece that I was going to put on Tom Sizemore later. And I'd run several of those. And I thought, okay, if I take that, grab it here, 
in the middle of the piece and just tear it. And then I put a piece on top and a piece on the bottom and just filled it in with a little blood gel and then it looked perfect. Hey, I, I took it on the set to Oliver. He said, that's perfect. Let's shoot it. Let's shoot it. Great. 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 <laughs> so and there's been a lot of those moments, especially doing blood gags, you know, there's a lot of, cause you want to test and test those blood gags. And there have been, a, you know, oh, I didn't turn the pressure up like I did on the test. It was, oh, shit. <laughs> so it's a, you know. Pretty there, common. There, my career is full of those moments. <laughs> That's hilarious. And you always learn by them. You always learn by thinking on your feet. You've got to think on your feet when you're doing a movie. Improv. Total improv. <laughs> So according to the all-knowing IMDb, your first professional credit was Years of the Beast. How did how did you land that one? Years of the Beast. That was a religious movie made by the Nazarene Church. And the way I got that job was my cousin, who at the time I think lived in Florida. He he was raised in Oklahoma City. And he was traveling. Maybe he was living in Austin at the time. I don't know. He was traveling to L.A. He got to L.A., to LAX, and shared a taxi with someone. And they started this. Paul Thomas was the guy's name. Not my cousin, but Paul Thomas he shared the taxi with. And they started talking. And Paul said, yeah, I'm an actor and a director. And Greg says, well, my cousin's a makeup artist here. And Paul's like, really? Well, we need a makeup artist for a project we're doing. Who knew? It's like they're they're in a in a taxi cab together. So Paul calls me up the next week and and says we're doing this film and we need some prosthetics and we're going to go up to Seattle to shoot it. And it was right after Mount Helen Blue, so we're going to go into those areas, you know, because it needs to be devastation. It's kind of you know, the end of times. I said, great, I, I'll do it. I'll do straight makeup and everything on the show. So I did that <laughs> and I loved it because I could do prosthetics and everything. That was one of my, one of my first credits. So. Another one of your first ones that I've been itching to ask you about, uh, you were an artist on the infamous set of Roar. Oh my gosh. That was, okay. So that was one of my first jobs <laughs> kind of right out of school. Oh God. I mean, I, I they had gone through so many people. The John Dubot was the, 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 the DP on the show. And I think the year previous, because they shot it for years, and the year previous or six months before, he was crawling under a tarp and a, a Siberian tiger got loose and just grabbed here. And that's what I heard. Just oh. ripped his, I, I don't know. And he, he became, you know, a really well-known cinematographer but anyway i thought oh, i don't know if i want to work on this but <laughs> it's it's money it's some prosthetics you know it gives me a chance so i went out there i interviewed oh you get the job i said okay because <laughs> i don't think anybody else would take it went up there i think i worked on it for two or three months and there was one day that i was working on the set and it was in one of their sets they built. And in the middle of the set, it had a ramp going up to the second floor. Well, they were shooting down the first floor with all the tigers and stuff and lions. I was sitting, the ramp goes up. I was sitting right outside of one of the rooms on my makeup case, just sitting there, you know, waiting for the next take. And all at once I hear this commotion 
and this huge male lion oh, runs up the ramp and I'm going <laughs> sits right down in front of me and puts his paw on my my knee and just looks at me and i pick up his paw and set it down and kind of move away from it and go into the the room next door by that time the trainer's up there hitting him and oh my god takes him downstairs trainer runs back up to me you never ever turn your back to a lion i go we didn't have a safety course here. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I think the next day I quit. I don't know. It was, that was the scariest moment I have ever had. You should have been like, well, how talk the hell did I get lions. away from you, buddy? Yeah, talk about lions and tigers Ow. and bears. Oh, my. Jesus. You know. That's terrifying. And that'd yeah. be one of your first jobs. One of my first jobs. And then I would have died. <laughs> oh. Makeup artist, beginning career. <laughs> you didn't know that's what you were signing up for. I didn't know. Because <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't give safety. You know, <laughs> now you have to, in the morning, you have to do the safety, you know, classes before you start shooting, especially if you're going to do a stunt. Oh, no, no, that was not <laughs> a fact in 1978. No. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. Around the same time, or maybe a year or two later, you worked on one of Angelique and I's favorite B-movie gems, Mausoleum. And <laughs> that is, and the best part about that movie is the effects. So was that well, a fun okay. experience so, for you? It was. It was because, you know, believe me, I'm, as, a, as a makeup artist, as a, you know, you just want to work. Right. You know? And and you're called a prostitute for one reason because you're working on everything you can get, you know. <laughs> so you prostitute yourself from one thing, one project to the other, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I was working with Marie Stein at the time. We were doing commercials and stuff. He said, "Well, I I got a call from this producer, and he wants to do some pickup shots on Mausoleum, and they've already shot the film, but they need to put a lot more prosthetics in and stuff like that. They want to do some bladder effects. I said, sign me up. I'll do it. John Beekler had done the movie and done the ending creature, and that's when I got to eat, meet John, and he was such a nice guy. I mean, I, I was so discouraged when he passed away because he just loved making Loved doing makeup and everything, but I got to meet him and I was doing my own thing. I did on um, the lead actress, I did some prosthetics and bladders because I'd learned 
a little bit from Dick Smith on that and also Joe Blasco who worked on that came from within. So, and he did those bladder effects on that. So I did those and a crown of thorns that bled and some other effects on the film. But it was just mainly feel it, filling in the prosthetics that they needed. Long hours, you know, fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Can't just zoom by dream warriors here. So what, what effects did you work on specifically on that one? Okay. So all of those films, they would get as many makeup effects people as they could to do all these little jobs here and there. Kevin mm-hmm. Yeager, they, uh, John Beekler would do some, Steve Johnson would do some. They'd hire all these people to do this effect because there were so many effects. No one lab could do all those effects. I mean, we still couldn't today because there were so many, because there were no digital effects. You had to do it in camera, and that's why they hired so many people. So I was hired to kill John Saxton with uh, being thrown back on a tail fan of the of a Cadillac. So I had to figure out how to do that, you know. <laughs> nowadays, they just do it with the digital effect. I had to make a, a dead cat. I had to make, uh, I, I don't know what else I did, but it was just small little fill-in things right. on it. And, you know, that went on to IMDb, and that was it. So next, you know, going into the next <laughs> uh, next project after that. Whatever I could. I mean, right. You got to keep food on the table. Oh, my gosh. I've been looking at my movie shelf, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, he did this one. Oh, my gosh, he, was, he did this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I started out, I, I you know, when I was still – Teaching at Joe Michael Makeup Center, I met Jeff Obrow and Steve Carpenter. And we did, and they were doing a little bitty film, a film at kind of a, a trailer to try to raise money for their film that they wanted to do. They called in Joe Blackwell Makeup Center. Joe said, uh, Matthew, go, go over there. They need some stuff done. I went over there, started doing stuff. We immediately hit it off, Jeff and Steve and I. And that led to about four or five films back to back. That little film was called The Dorn That Drip Blood or Pranks or whatever else it was called at the time. It was a <laughs> lot of blood effects and stuff like that. And then that led to The Power. And then that led to... The Kindred, which was a big film for me because I I just it was turning a, an actress into a fish and, you know, doing the effects of what the monster does to everybody. And that was so much fun. Mike McCracken and his dad, uh, Mike McCracken, McCracken Sr. did the big monster. And Mike and I still talk about it today, about how much fun that film was because it was just get down and get your hands dirty and do <laughs> the film, you know? Right. And we got to pour goo on Rod Steiger. I mean, who would, who wouldn't want to do that? <laughs> exactly. Was Silver Bullet in the same vein as Dream Warriors and you just kind of got brought on to do something minor? I, actually, no, I was, that was before the Kindred. I think. Yeah, that was before the Kindred, and I was hired by Mike McCracken Sr. and his son, Mike McCracken, 
to come work with them on the whole film. So I was there on the whole film and I became their go-to guy to do teeth. I did all the teeth for the show, bladders for the, 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 the show. I would sculpt a little bit here and there. They were great sculptors. So they did all the mainly sculpting. I do mold making, running foam, getting everything together. And then we went to Wilmington to do that, all the applications. So I worked on that film from beginning to end, even going to New York oh, wow. at the beginning to do all of the um, the face cast with Mike and his son. And so it, it was a great team. We just had a great time on it. And I was applying a makeup, a wolf makeup. One day it was in the church for the church scene. Oh, yeah. And Carla Winbaldi was there and he was kind of walking oh, around and looking at everybody. I was doing the makeup and he stood behind me for a long time watching me do the makeup. Finally, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said son you're a real artist i wow. go okay carlo involved me huh. called me in it i'm a real artist so yeah <laughs> that, that was that was something it's my very favorite werewolf movie actually and that church scene is nightmarish i mean it's terrifying <laughs> it so, is isn't it and bravo we, sir bravo <laughs> thank you thank you we we figured out all between the three of us, we figured out how to do the transformation scene with Everett mm -hmm. McGill by doing, instead of doing, we were going to do it on him and we put some bladders on him. We also put under his nose a piece of contoured dental acrylic and then I think the cheeks also or some someplace else and tied a very thin wire, counter wire to it that came out. You know, we had to get it just right so we could pull from the outside uh, of the nose and pull it and stretch it. So we would do American Werewolf in in uh, in London effects, but doing it on the real person. So uh, Mike McCracken Sr. was always trying to think of things like that. And I loved working with him because we it was a it was a mutual love fest there trying to figure out how to do this now to do that because you had to do it in camera you can't there was no digital effects right how did you do the hair coming when, oh. when he's you know after he's dead how did you do the hair going away that's i've i've watched that just like rewound it just to to see it i i worked a little bit in college and in, in makeup and stuff so it's 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 fascinating to me <laughs> <laughs> we did a, um, a textured foam latex piece that was about maybe a half an inch thick. And that's a, it was a, on, a, a, on a, a square, like a frame, wood frame, pulled really tight, had texture on it, and then painted. And then Mike's daughter punched hair into it. And it would go in and get the loops in the back. And we put, we found out wax, no, dental acrylic wouldn't stick to the, the foam latex after we separated it and then we poured dental acrylic on the back and put a handle in it so all we had to do was just roll the camera it was a tight shot roll the camera and pull the hair down continue pulling the hair down into the foam latex and then all they did was reverse the film so it would grow back out. very so simple freaking cool very cool <laughs> yeah. so, how much experience did you have with Gary Busey? Not, you know, we didn't have to do anything to him, so we kept Lear. 
<laughs> I was gonna say uh, that's probably for the better. <laughs> uh, uh, I would I would say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Matthew, take us through your time on Dracula. That's a heavyweight set, and you won an Academy Award for it. What was going on there? You know, I just went with a friend last Sunday, this past Sunday, to the Alamo Draft House. They were showing Bram Stoker's Dracula, and of course, you can't talk during the film. <laughs> he wanted me to talk so much about this and about this and about this. And it was really great to watch it again because it was an excellent print. And I just relived that every moment of that film when I watched it. It was one of the best film experience I have ever had in my career. First, Greg Canham hired me to do the application on the set. And so Greg and I would do the applications if he would come to the set and help me do that. Uh, sometimes I'd have to do them myself every day on, on Gary Ullman. And I would take care of Gary Ullman's prosthetics and go to the set with him and watch it and take it off at the end of the day. But the application was my duty on that film and making teeth, all the vampire teeth I made for the film and working out little things like Winona's, you know, little thing. And Winona and I had already already worked together on Edward Scissorhands. So we mm. knew it. And then the DP and I, Michael Bauhaus, had worked on Dirty Run Scoundrels and What About Bob before that? And the AD I'd worked with two times before, Peter Giuliani. It was, I, it, once I walked into the production meeting, it was just like, okay, it's like home week, you know? <laughs> right. Well, if you know the DP, you're in like Flint because, you know, he, he loved me because I was department head on What About Bob and we would just, you know, he was a great DP. God rest his soul. It was the most amazing. I the, the only thing I regret on that film is not taking my camera and going into all the stages and taking pictures of those beautiful sets that they mm, built. Yes. Because they would build them, we would shoot on them, we, they'd make sure the print's all good, and then they'd destroy them and build something else. It was, and we shot everything at Sony except for two or three days at Universal Backlog. And everything was on the Sony lot, except for one. I think one day they had to go out to uh, to a synagogue or something like that. But it was the most amazing film that I'd ever worked with. And to hear Gary Ullman say the, the <laughs> Bella Lugosi line, you know, the children of the night, what music they made. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Gary Ullman is saying Bella Lugosi's line. <laughs> from that film so anyway <laughs> now it was just yeah and the first day of shooting was when gary shows keanu into his room and he's shaving and he licks the knife that was the first day of shooting with gary and of course you don't really notice it but and i forgot about it until i watched that there's one scene that you see in a two-shot Gary and Keanu together and the back wall is moving towards them just to kind of pull the whole room together and that was the first day we shot and I said okay this production is going to be like that so there was always mechanical moving things mimes doing behind screens it was magical I mean he would he would Francis Ford Coppola would be playing a video of Nosferatu when 
we would be on the set going, you know, this is what the, the shot I want to do. You know, Gary raising up in the from the coffin, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast with the arms, with the uh, candles in the arms. It all came from all, all types of movies that would doctor the cabinet of dr caligari you know it all came from those original films that we all watched as kids and mentors before came out with all of these things there weren't any digital effects it was all screens or or piece of glass you know at an angle shooting through doing the mist and everything that was all second unit there were francis son no francis son would direct the uh, second unit and Michael Bauhaus, the DP's son, would shoot it. Florian Bauhaus. I, you, you could walk on different sound stages and just see things going on because there was a plethora of things going on. If I wasn't doing Gary, I was doing another set of hands that he shows his hands and he's got hair on his hands or something like that. And also to, to be shot on the Sony MGM lot, You'd walk into Borgo Pass and you go, okay, the Wizard of Oz was shot in this freaking stage. Okay, this <laughs> is three year. Okay. Is... And they just shot Hook on those stages too. So some of the sets were used for uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think we used the ship even. Wow. It was, uh, it was filmmaking at its best, you know. I haven't seen that movie in a few years, but it's oh. what's clear is that it was made by people with an appreciation for the source material and the genre in general. Very, very much so. Very much so. And we'd walk in and he'd be playing music and everybody get into a somber. It was just so much fun. Now, when did you get news of the Oscar? Well, so let's see. After Bram Stoker's Dracula, I worked on, because they, they had a lot of editing to do and emulsion film and placing rotoscoping and stuff like that on the film. So right after we finished filming Bram Stoker's Dracula, I went on to Citizen Cone, HBO Citizen Cone with uh, James Woods doing his makeup and then worked on So I Married an Ex-Murderer that summer with Michael Myers, I was department adding that, and then went on to heaven and earth after that. So that, it, it was quite, it was quite a few months before it came out. It came in out in November. And of course they start choosing the films. And I found out in February of the next year that we had been nominated. And well, before that we had to put a little clip together. So Michelle, Greg and I met, put a little clip of the film together they had to play it and we had to go and, and you know talk about what we had to do on the film and everything and promote the show and then that next week we found out we got nominated that was I was pretty cool because <laughs> I started my career you know I want to do make I want to create makeup I want to learn everything about hair makeup everything I can Oscars was the fur furthest from my mind about winning right. an Oscar or even getting nominated. So when that happened, it was like, oh, this is, this is cool. <laughs> you can, you can, you can, you know, people recognize you for this. And then when we won, it was, uh, you know, and they started playing the music that was, that Bram started, it was, it was a magical, magical time. It was the most amazing. I, I, I think, I think one of the, the, the funnest, things about winning though was that night when I won my mom and dad were 
watching television in a Toke, Oklahoma. And as soon as I won, the phone rang and my dad picked it up, caller on the other end said, this is such and such from API news, you know, Associated Press. And we just wanted to get your comments about uh, your son winning the Academy Award. And he goes, well, I have three sons. Matthew's the youngest, but tonight he's number one. I just, that, I, you know, I just melt every time I say that. I had to hold myself back from crying because right after that, we won in March. I took my Oscar home in August to show my mom and dad. After we finished Natural Born Killers, I needed a break. So I went back. Uh, Then my dad passed away the next month. It was timing is everything, you know. Right. Did you take your eight making experience over to Congo? <laughs> Is that what you helped with over there? I had nothing to do with the apes. <laughs> that was Stan Winston. Okay. I did what the apes did to you okay. on that. <laughs> and did makeup on that and the crushed heads and, and the dead bodies and stuff like that. It had nothing to do with the, the apes. On that. Thank goodness, because they had their own problems on that. Another terrifying movie for me because I saw that in theaters. I, I thought it was just going to be a nice, you know, Disney type film, I guess, when I went to go see it. <laughs> <Not> apes. <laughs> what? Mutated apes? <laughs> but we got to go down to Costa Rica the first night we were there. We we're in our this place, you know, sleeping. And all at once we hear this big boom and look out the window and there's this volcano going off way in the distance and it's like you could see the volcano what who should we be worried of no it does that every night oh god hey and we got at the the base of the volcanoes i was like okay this is nice (laughs) leave now you also worked on fear and loathing what did you do fear and loathing all i did on fear and loathing was try to make johnny depp's ears push out you know, I, that was my sole thing to try to do because the makeup artist called me and said, I, but it was like, how do I do that? I was like, yeah, I've never done that before. So I came up with a little piece of plastic that I covered in silicone that was glued behind his ear. But I think the best thing about that was Terry Gilliam came to my uh, studio to meet with Johnny about the look of the thing. And and I got Johnny was late. I got about 30 minutes with Terry Gilliam just to talk to him. You know, because I'd love Monty Python. So it was great just meeting him. I can imagine. That's the thing about my career is I just met so many people and worked with so many people, good and bad. And it's just, they're all people and we're all in for the love of it. And it's just, it's, it's fun. You've done a lot of work in film, but you've done just as much in television. So what would you say are the primary differences they are creating for film versus television? Well, I equate being on, especially when we television would do 24 episodes episodes for a season now they only do 12 or 6 18 18 is you know maybe 12 really but we would do 24 i equate it to a train a train leaving the station and when you set your foot on the first day of production and not getting into the station until you finish the whole season and that would be starting in august and not finishing until May, April or May of the next year. So you're run all the way through. You'll get time off for Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, but that's it. You go straight through. And I did a lot of television work before I worked on my first series. But my first series 
to work on were the last two seasons of X-Files. And again, that was a great experience. I couldn't wait for the <laughs> next script to come out to see what Chris Carter and Frank Spotniks and I would come up with, you know, for me. Sometimes there would be a heads up because there was a creature in a couple of episodes forward and we need a little bit more prep time but it was so it was like a family you you became a family and that was 24 episodes and just bam bam what can we do oh we got to skin some people oh great that's perfect okay we're gonna <laughs> put this together and we're just gonna do this it's like a mad scientist you know <laughs> figuring out all this uh, okay i went up okay we need to make this guy's face bleed black goo okay we just you put a face we're gonna do this <laughs> oh my god it was just so much fun so much fun doing every episode and we'd have to do things on every episode so much fun and then after that i worked on one season one and a quarter seasons of csi miami and then there was a downtime and then i started on csi and that led to what 14 seasons of csi that was, that was a lot that was a fan that was a family. And again, I couldn't wait till the next script of how somebody's going to die. I mean, how morbid is that? I mean, how are we going to kill somebody this time? You know? You got to make it look cool. You got to make it look realistic. But less blood. You know, don't put too much blood. We won't get away. So, Matthew, in your whole career, what project has cost you the most sleep? What's the most challenging thing that you've had to conquer uh working with oliver stone on natural killers <laughs> <laughs> that was i had nightmares for a month after that film it was so bloody and we shot in a prison with real prisoners and just the nature of the film you know bob richardson the wonderful dp had an eight millimeter film uh, camera, a Super 8 camera, video camera, just whatever, just to shoot it, just shoot it, shoot, shoot this and shoot this. So you had to be prepared for everything. And it was just a nightmare. I mean, it was fun, but it was a nightmare. It was, it was just crazy, just nonstop lunacy. Your credits, your list is so amazing like i said you know just looking through my own well, personal we'll movie collection i'm like again. oh my gosh <laughs> that would be fantastic it, it, we know. could do a dracula watch along and, and <laughs> oh. point out all the magnificent oh that would be fun yes. no we need to do a natural born killers watch along. i don't think that's been done right we could do dracula why not both hey <laughs> i'm in for it yeah oh, yeah all right <laughs> I just have my my standard question, Justin, if you have anything else before I ask that. Have you seen any good movies during the lockdown? A lot. I mean, sometimes I go back to the old movies that I want to see, like Dracula or something like that. I love I love Prometheus and the, the follow-up of that, you know, sci-fi. I love the, the new, what was it, Edge of Tomorrow? Tomorrow War the, with uh, Chris Pratt. I love that. Yes. Malignant that just came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Disturb. That is the most disturbing film I've seen in a long time. <laughs> uh, and then uh, what was the one with um, Muriel's Wedding? Uh, a few. That Hereditary. Was, uh, Hereditary what? with Tony Oh, Black. my gosh. That was disturbing. 
you know, sometimes I can't watch those shows. <laughs> They're so disturbing. And also the series, The Haunting of Hill House and Blythe Manor or whatever it was. Yeah. Love those. Love those shows. Oh my gosh. That I had to I had to work myself up to The Haunting of Hill House. Is that the name of it? to watch it and mm-hmm. i had to watch it during the day because it was so frightening to me until the towards the end and i figured it out brilliant brilliant absolutely oh. brilliant i've heard good things i still need to watch can't wait myself. for his next one you need to watch both of those yeah. because they're oh. they're gonna freak you out <laughs> don't tell anybody <laughs> don't let anybody tell you about it because it's it's a surprise i got you i'll, I'll start watching them tonight <laughs> Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> right, well, Matthew, what I like to ask all of our guests, you know, movie watching is a, a multi-sensory experience for everybody. So what is your go-to movie snack? What's that one thing that you like to munch on that just makes your your movie watching experience just absolutely perfect? Well, to drink, it's a Coke Icy and to eat. It's a small popcorn, no butter, and hot dog with mustard and relish. Lots of relish. Oh, yeah. I can get down with that. Oh, <laughs> and I go in, and I get there a little early. And I just have my snack. And I, I'm a geek. I love film. I love films. I go into the I, – I couldn't wait to get back to the movie theaters, you know, after this COVID. Right. And I just – I love to be immersed in that. I don't care how good or bad the film is. I just want to be entertained. And I don't go in to watch, oh, they should have done this makeup this way, this way. It's like, I'm here to get entertained. (laughs) You're off the clock. Yeah, not working. (laughs) That's what it's all about, right? Exactly. From Taxi Driver to Godfather to... The Exorcist, which is one of my favorite scary movies of all time. Classic. Of course. It, it scared the out of me when I was growing up. I mean, I saw it in the movie theater two or three times. I was just like, oh, my God, this is the scariest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> well, Matthew, we're not going to hold you hostage here. I guess to wrap up, uh, do you have anything on the horizon, anything coming out soon in the pipeline? Well. Can I mention that? I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got two films coming out probably by this time next year. I mean, coming up next year because of the thing. I still work with I still work with Miss Glenn Close, as you saw, Albert Nobbs, Hillbilly mm. Elegy. We've got a new film that she's doing right now called Brothers, and I designed her makeup for that, which she plays. I'm, I won't get into. It. Oh, okay. Okay. So anyway, I got two films I worked on uh, at the beginning of the year. I'm basically retired, but after I got a nomination for Hillbilly Elegy, people started calling me, would you do some stuff? I said, yes, as long as I don't have to go on the set because my days on the set are over. I will make things for you, send them to you, show show you how to do them, but I'm not coming to the set, especially with COVID. Right. Uh, I mean, doing doing your makeups is hard enough having to deal with a mask and whatever. Also, you guys, just be kind to each other out there. Just be kind to each other and love film, okay? It can take you away. It can take you to another planet, to another existence. It's just magic. 
Well said and and agreed. Matthew, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. Thank you, have you a, very much. Let's have a do great it again. Yes, we mind. will. Oh, yes. We'll definitely get those watch parties set up because we have got some Ooh, questions for you. Fun. And we can pause <laughs> and talk and have, people can ask questions, you know. I'd love it. I'd love it from a different perspective, from somebody that was actually there. Exactly. Thank you so much for taking your time. This Thank evening, you. Man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank All right. you. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, inviting all you fans of Monsters, Madness, and Magic to check out my podcast, Rants from the Black Lodge. What are we all about? Well, let me lay some inside baseball on you. The first of each month, myself and the Rant Army dissect some of cinema's greatest horror and cult films with in-depth retrospectives. Then on the 15th of each month, we present something a little more lighthearted with a fun watch-along commentary for some of cult films' more underappreciated offerings. Rants from the Black Lodge can be found on all major platforms, so hop on over to your app of choice and give us a sub. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge, and for the love of Cthulhu, hop over and check us out on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. Oh yeah, and please continue to support all the great content by our friends at Monsters, Madness, and Magic.